Glenn Gore laughed when he stepped into Candy Montgomery's living room. There was a huge piece of butcher paper hanging on her bookshelf, and he couldn't help but chuckle. Candy had used a magic marker to split the paper into two columns. The left column was labeled Whys, and the right labeled Why Nots. Each column was filled with bullet points in Candy's neat handwriting. It was time to make a decision once and for all. Candy and Alan sat next to each other on her overstuffed couch, concentrating on the paper. Wise, sense of adventure, curiosity, companionship. Why nots, unnecessary risks, fear of getting caught, emotional involvement. As it stood, the two columns were tied. Candy was getting testy. She reminded Alan that she'd already made up her mind to do it. She just needed to know his answer. After all, it's not like she could do this alone. But if he didn't say yes soon, she wouldn't waste any more time on him. There were other men she could do this with, and they didn't need a chart to be convinced. Then, as she stared at the butcher paper, Candy realized that she hadn't included the one bullet point that might finally convince Alan to cheat on his wife with her. As a good Christian, Candy didn't want to write down the word sex, but it obviously belonged in the left column. And when that was factored in, the whys of having an affair just slightly outweighed the why nots. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Today we're covering Candy Montgomery, a stay-at-home mom who was tangled up in a deadly love triangle in 1980. This week, we'll take you through Candy's early life and how her relationship with Alan Gore led Candy to murder. Next week, we'll cover how Candy was caught and the strange psychological trigger that led to the crime. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Most parents tell their children that the type of person they are on the inside is what matters most. But as Candy Montgomery was growing up, she heard nothing of the sort. Instead, she learned that presenting a happy, flawless exterior was more important than expressing her true feelings. This strict impassivity may have been influenced by her father, who was a radar technician in the U.S. Army. Candy's family moved between bases frequently, never spending more than three years in one place, Bouncing between France, West Germany, Virginia, Maryland, and Texas could have left a child feeling unmoored, but Candy loved her nomadic life. Outgoing and vivacious, Candy easily picked up conversations with strangers and made friends anywhere she went. This tendency constantly led to disagreements with her mother, who had rigid ideas about what was right and wrong for a young girl. The old-fashioned woman often seemed ashamed of Candy's larger-than-life personality. At one point, she even seemed to be embarrassed by Candy's expression of physical pain. When Candy was four, she challenged a neighborhood boy to race her to a water pump and fill up a glass jar. She lost and threw a tantrum, smashing the jar onto the pump. Shards of glass went everywhere, and one grazed Candy's nose, drawing blood. Panicking at the blood pouring down her face, Candy kicked and screamed all the way to the emergency room. She needed to be held down by nurses and didn't stop screaming until the gash was completely stitched up. But rather than trying to soothe her daughter, Candy's mother held her finger to her lips and said, what will the people in the waiting room think? The scar on Candy's nose faded with time, but her mother's reaction that day stuck with her for her entire life. Why would Candy dare to express her true feelings when it only led to scolding and shame? Before we continue with Candy's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 1996, psychologists Nancy Eisenberg, Richard Fabes, and Bridget Murphy studied how parents react to their children's negative emotions. They found that children whose mothers tell them to keep their feelings hidden tend to be less emotionally competent than their peers and can struggle with poor social skills. After the water pump incident, Candy learned to push down her negative feelings, which may have contributed to emotional issues as an adult. As they grow, children who repress their feelings to please a parent often end up in painful emotional cycles. They try to avoid their feelings for a time and then are overwhelmed by pent-up emotions that they're not equipped to handle. Through her mother, Candy learned to focus more on what was expected of her than what she actually felt. After the water pump incident, she constantly modified her behavior for the benefit of the metaphorical people in the waiting room. She stopped listening to her own feelings, putting all of her energy into making sure others thought well of her. 
Candy knew that her mother would never give her the affirmation she craved, so she turned to cheaper, easier sources of attention. She'd already noticed that the boys in her class were drawn to her and decided to capitalize on that. Thanks to her complete lack of shyness, flirting was easy. She quickly established a reputation as the loud, rebellious girl everyone wanted. By the fifth grade, Candy was receiving gifts from secret admirers. Her parents' strict rules against dating stopped her from pursuing any of these schoolyard crushes. But Candy didn't care too much. As long as she was the center of attention, she was happy. Candy continued to be boy crazy in her teenage years. In high school, she hated going to class and spent most of her time flirting with older boys. At home, she loved reading trashy romance novels and imagined what it would be like to kiss or even go steady with one of the boys she mooned over. The clashes with her mother continued over dating, smoking, using the phone, and wearing makeup. Candy would later tell journalists Jim Atkinson and John Bloom that her mother always, quote, felt I was too young for everything. But these strict rules backfired, making Candy want to rebel even more by acting as grown up as possible. When Candy was 16, her mother finally allowed her to date. Candy wasted no time in finding a boyfriend and started dating a boy named Chris. Chris was a year older, one of the popular senior guys that Candy and her friends fawned over. She fell madly in love and couldn't wait to lose her virginity with him. After several months of dating, it finally happened in the backseat of Chris's Ford. But Candy was disappointed. Having sex with someone was exciting, but just didn't feel as good as she thought it should. Still, she stayed with Chris. He boosted her popularity and gave her the kind of uncomplicated affection that her family couldn't provide. Chris tried to propose to Candy the winter after her senior year, but her mother wouldn't allow him to give her the ring. Again, she thought Candy was too young. Candy was secretly relieved. This was one of the few times she agreed with her mother. She liked Chris a lot, but also recognized that there were plenty of other men interested in her. She wanted a few more years of freedom and allowed their long-distance relationship to dissolve soon after graduation. In the first couple of years following high school, Candy worked a series of secretarial jobs, but found the office to be even more boring than the classroom. She'd always wanted to be a mother and intended to get out of the working world as soon as possible to start a family. She daydreamed about living on a huge farm, surrounded by children and animals. But she knew that a life like that would never come for a woman on her own. She needed to get married. So it was time to leave the nest and make things happen for herself. In 1970, when Candy was 20 years old, she moved out of her parents' home and rented a duplex in El Paso, Texas. She was dead set on finding a husband. Candy went on dozens of dates that summer, but no one lived up to her expectations. She had stopped believing in the heart-pounding love that her novels described and was willing to settle for a man she could build a stable life with. 
after many misfires, an unexpected candidate arrived in 25-year-old Pat Montgomery. He was a shy, young engineer, not usually Candy's type. And though he was older, Pat was in many ways less mature than Candy. His entire life revolved around school, and he had no idea how to talk to women. He mostly talked about electromagnetics when he talked at all. Pat's mother worked with Candy at a furniture factory and insisted that she meet him. Pat worked at an electronics company across the state in Dallas, but visited his parents frequently. He agreed to call Candy the next time he was home, if only to make his mom happy. Candy was also uninterested. She described their first date at a Mexican restaurant as the dullest date in her life. They had a second, awkward outing to the sand dunes outside of El Paso. When Pat asked for a third date, she politely told him to call, never intending to pick up. If Pat had been more observant, he may have realized that Candy had snubbed him. But when his calls went unanswered, he simply assumed that she was busy. He sent her a dozen roses and a humorous greeting card. On the inside, he wrote, Hope you get the sand out of your pants. Candy was so touched by Pat's innocent flirtation that she called to say thank you. They agreed to see each other the next time Pat visited his mother in El Paso and to write to each other until then. Pat's return to the city came much sooner than he expected. His uncle, who had acted like a father, died suddenly in July of 1970. Pat arrived in El Paso for the funeral and called Candy the next night. Somehow the loss made him forget his shyness and he opened up to her about everything he was feeling. Candy and Pat walked through a park together for hours, talking about their families and dreams for the future. Candy saw a side of Pat she hadn't seen before. He wasn't just quiet and awkward, but also clever, ambitious, and remarkably kind. And Pat, still deep in grief, began to see Candy's smiling, sympathetic face as the antidote to all the pain he was going through. They both felt an emotional connection on a level they'd never experienced before. A few days later, Candy told a friend that she'd met the man she was going to marry. When the friend asked what his name was, Candy drew a blank, eventually saying, I think his name is Pete. Candy and Pat exchanged love letters all summer and grew increasingly fond of one another. She didn't find him particularly handsome, but she'd gone out with worse. His gentle nature and earning potential made him husband material. Two months after Candy and Pat met, they were engaged. A few weeks after that, Candy Montgomery walked down the aisle at Trinity Presbyterian Church, beaming. After a lifetime of moving from place to place, Candy was finally able to settle down. She was ready to create the stable, loving, middle-class life of her dreams, or at least the appearance of one. Coming up, Candy meets Alan Gore and radically alters the direction of her life. 
Hi, listeners. Here's a series I think you're really going to like. We all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new ParCast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Murden as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers. Dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As soon as Candy Montgomery got married, she got to work on starting her picture-perfect family. In September of 1972, the 22-year-old gave birth to her daughter, Jenny. Her son, Ian, followed in October of 1974. Delighted by the idea of having one daughter and one son, 24-year-old Candy got her tubes tied right after Ian was born. Three years later, in 1977, Pat started making enough money to afford a house. They bought a generous plot of land in the Dallas suburbs of Collin County, and 27-year-old Candy got ready to check the last thing off her white picket fence list by moving into a big house. The Montgomery's house was custom-built, a rambling wood and glass structure that looked like an alpine lodge. The huge, manicured lawn gave five-year-old Jenny and three-year-old Ian plenty of room to play, and Candy could see herself hosting their high school graduation parties there one day. After her perfect little family and custom dream home, the next best thing in Candy's life was the church. She and Pat had started attending Methodist services after Ian was born. Even though they described themselves as agnostics, it felt like the right thing to do for the children. Candy was surprised to find a genuine connection with Christianity. Once she found a church she liked, Candy formed a close friendship with her pastor, one of the few female pastors in the state. With lots of extra time on her hands, Candy offered to help the small church in any way she could. 
Before long, Candy was at the beating heart of the church's social circle. She ran committees, coordinated children's programs, and talked through scripture with a close group of friends. She flawlessly balanced being the perfect mother, wife, and follower of God, and basked in the consistent praise she received. But even with a packed calendar, Candy was bored. At age 28, Candy couldn't shake the feeling that she'd skipped some crucial stage of life by marrying so early. She wondered how her life would be different if she'd gone to college and pursued a career, or even if she had married someone other than Pat. Their marriage was loving and supportive, but Candy was getting tired of Pat. He worked too much and didn't seem interested in her day-to-day -day life. The little bit of magnetism they once had was gone, and they hardly had sex anymore. They never fought, but they didn't talk much either. At first, Candy tried to avoid these feelings. She funneled her nerves into starting a church choir and encouraged other couples in the congregation to join. It was there, at choir practice, that Candy got to know Alan Gore. 30-year-old Alan was a personable, friendly man who was remarkably similar to Candy. He had gone from frequent volunteer at the church to one of its most distinguished and recognizable leaders. As they grew closer, Candy and Alan often joked around during choir practice or briefly caught each other's eyes during meetings. Candy wasn't really attracted to Alan, but found the attention satisfying. It was perhaps this attention that made Candy wonder if an affair could be the answer to her problems. She confided in her pastor that she wanted sex on her terms, without emotional commitment or the expectation of a baby. She wanted to experience the things she'd read about in paperback novels as a teenager, things she knew she wouldn't get with Pat. According to the work of therapist Emily Brown, Candy also may have been looking for an affair because she felt suffocated in her relationship with her husband. In her book, Patterns of Infidelity and Their Treatment, Brown describes five types of affairs, including the conflict avoidance affair. Conflict avoidance affairs are common in couples who feel they can't talk about their problems with each other and instead fall under what Brown calls a blanket of controlled amiability. One spouse may use an affair to pull off this blanket and get all the couple's issues out in the open, thinking that it's easier than facing them head on. This type of affair tends to happen in the first 12 years of marriage and is especially common among people who habitually hide their negative feelings to avoid offending their partner. Starting an affair may have also given the 28-year-old chronically dissatisfied Candy something to do. A few weeks after she first had the idea, Candy made up her mind to definitely have an affair and treated it like a new project. She had fixated on finding a husband eight years earlier and now applied that same level of focus to figuring out how to cheat on him. She signed up for the church volleyball team, knowing that Alan would be at every practice. <laughs> One night at volleyball practice, Candy bumped into Alan when they tried to make the same play on the ball. The moment they collided, Candy decided that she wanted to have sex with him. 
He smelled good, masculine and clean, and that made him instantly more attractive. A few nights later, after choir practice, Candy flagged Alan down and asked him to talk in her car. As soon as Alan slid into the passenger seat, Candy turned to him and asked bluntly, would you be interested in having an affair? Alan was taken aback and immediately said no, he didn't want to threaten Candy's marriage. And he reminded Candy of the one thing that she had conveniently ignored when fantasizing about her fling with Alan. He was married as well. Alan's wife, Betty Gore, was an intense woman who didn't participate in church activities much. She and Alan were similar to Candy and Pat in certain ways. The couples were the same age, had both married young, and had daughters around the same age. Betty's daughter, Alyssa, was even close friends with Candy's oldest, Jenny. But in every other way, Betty was Candy's opposite. She was stern, quiet, and seemingly uninterested in making friends. Betty took the Bible very seriously, and her literal interpretation of scripture often led her to come across as extremely judgmental. And that wasn't just at church. In her job as a public school teacher, Betty was known for disciplining students harshly whenever she caught them misbehaving. Angry students had vandalized her house several times, and she constantly clashed with parents and other teachers over her disciplinary style. Still, Betty always claimed to have the moral high ground. Betty had tried to make friends by integrating herself into Candy's tight-knit church circle, but they didn't like her much. Candy especially thought she was too socially awkward and rigid to be one of the gals. Candy tried to be nice to everyone in the congregation, but felt a reflexive dislike for Betty. She was so stern and rude, so focused on rules and propriety. If she was honest with herself, Candy might have realized Betty reminded her of her own mother. So when Alan brought up his wife after hearing the affair proposition, Candy immediately backtracked. She had hardly thought about Betty before and didn't want to start now. She quickly clarified that she only wanted sex from Alan, nothing emotional. Then she accepted his no and promised not to mention the affair again. But before he got out of the car, Alan leaned in and kissed her. In the following days, both Candy and Alan were confused. Alan had rejected the idea of an affair almost as a reflex, but it still sounded enticing. Alan believed that marriage was forever and knew he loved his wife, but lately, Betty wasn't easy to live with. She came home tense and angry after work and sometimes refused to talk to Alan as she graded papers through the night. Whenever they attended a church or school event, Alan felt obliged to make up for her rude or insensitive behavior. It was exhausting. Alan's one respite was his work. Like most men in Collin County, he worked in the electronics industry, and his position required a lot of travel. But Betty became so depressed whenever he left town, he stayed home as much as he could. By the time Candy propositioned him, Alan had completely stopped traveling to keep Betty happy. Though he wanted to make things work, he couldn't help feeling that his wife would never make a similar sacrifice for him. 
In fact, when he suggested counseling, Betty claimed she didn't have time. Compared to his strained marriage, a fling with a woman who actually showed interest in him must have seemed too good to be true. He'd never been with anyone other than Betty and wondered what it would be like. A few weeks after the proposition, Alan took Candy out for lunch on her 29th birthday. He surprised her with a birthday card that read, For the Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Inside the card was a tiny bag of Red Hot's cinnamon candies. She was tickled by the gag gift and was sure that this meant Alan was in. But when conversation eventually turned to the affair, Alan still seemed nervous. By mid-November, Candy was ready to take the plunge, but Alan couldn't fully commit. He called her from work almost every day, asking about some detail of their affair, which was still completely hypothetical. Sick of talking on the phone, Candy invited Alan over for lunch. She fixed her famous lasagna and presented him with a pro-con list as a last-ditch effort to convince him about the affair. As they methodically tallied up the risks and possible rewards, Alan started to lean toward yes, but he insisted on establishing ground rules. During another phone conversation, Candy wrote out their ground rules on a legal pad. All of the expenses would be split evenly. They would meet during Alan's lunch break exactly once every two weeks. And if either of them became too emotionally involved or grew uncomfortable with the arrangement, they would end it. No questions asked. Affairs generally seem like impulsive acts, so setting up complicated terms and conditions might seem odd, but Candy and Alan's careful planning allowed them to diffuse any remaining guilt they had about being unfaithful. It also plays into a common pattern of cognitive tricks that people use to justify infidelity. A 2013 study in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships found that those who were unfaithful in relationships tended to rationalize or downplay their infidelity when asked about it. They tended to claim that the person they cheated with was not important, or that it was a momentary lapse in judgment and would almost never take full responsibility for the act. By trying to create a highly controlled, undetectable affair, Candy and Alan may have been engaging in similar behavior. They used rules and lists to convince themselves that their actions were in line with their moral beliefs. Eventually, the guilt would catch up with them, but they were too excited for their first meeting to focus on that. On December 12, 1978, 29-year-old Candy peeked out the window of her room at the Continental Inn in Richardson, Texas, waiting for Alan. She could hardly contain her excitement as she changed into her favorite pink negligee. But as she waited for Alan to drive over from work, the butterflies in Candy's stomach turned to slight nausea. She was a Christian woman and knew that adultery was wrong. Her husband would be gutted by the news that she was seeing another man, and Alan's wife, Betty, already seemed so unstable that Candy didn't know what she'd do if she found out. Candy's nerves continued when Alan arrived. They exchanged pleasantries, both hesitant to make the first move. They'd promised each other that there would be no strings attached, but now it seemed they both doubted how well that would work. 
After a while, they sat on the bed, silent. Were they actually going to go through with it or not? After a sustained, awkward silence, Candy made a joke and Alan laughed. The tension in the room dissipated as Alan touched Candy's shoulder, then pulled her in to kiss him. Candy was surprised by Alan's lack of experience. When she went to kiss him, it was clear he didn't know what to do with his tongue. So she was perhaps less surprised when the sex was conventional and over quickly. But being with someone other than Pat was still thrilling to Candy. Besides, she reasoned, Alan could learn. Coming up, a single affair becomes a secret to die for. Now, back to the story. In the first months of 1979, 29-year-old Candy Montgomery's life revolved around her affair with Alan Gore. Candy relished the thrill of their motel room trysts. They were such a departure from her uneventful life as a housewife, mother, and church leader. They saw each other every other week, and soon enough their rendezvous became just another steady routine. Candy made lunch, they ate, they discussed their marriages and the latest church gossip, then had sex, showered, and went their separate ways. Aside from a few minutes of intercourse each time they saw each other, Candy and Alan really acted more like best friends than lovers. Candy shared with Alan all the dreams and plans she felt she couldn't share with her husband, Pat. Alan encouraged her to pursue it all, and Candy appreciated his confidence in her. But Candy also preferred to talk because sex between them was dull. She felt it was hardly worth the effort. She told her best friend that Alan had a nice body. She just wished he'd use it in more imaginative ways. Candy had started the affair for transcendent romance novel lovemaking, and after a few meetings, it was clear that Alan was looking for something else. Candy wanted an illicit, sexy romp. Alan seemed to prefer a mutual therapy session with some tedious sex on the side, and that just wasn't enough for Candy. When Alan wanted to take a few months off as his pregnant wife entered her third trimester, Candy didn't object. In fact, she offered to host the baby shower. After Betty gave birth to a daughter, Bethany, in early July of 1979, Alan hardly left her side for weeks. The baby brought them closer together, but the moment Alan returned to work, his wife's mood darkened again. Betty had always been a perfectionist and was at her best when things were stable and predictable, a new baby was the opposite of that, and Bethany's birth pushed Betty into a bout of serious depression. She was stressed, but as day after day went by without talking to anyone but her husband, Betty also realized that she was lonely. To her, women like Candy Montgomery seemed to have such an easy time flitting between social groups, while Betty had no one. Her stern treatment of students made her unpopular at work. Her stringent faith made her unpopular at church. She had no close friends. Her oldest daughter, Alyssa, even seemed to spend more time at Candy's house than at her own. But that was okay, because Betty had Alan. At least, she thought she did. 
After several weeks, Alan and Candy's affair resumed. They went through the motions for a few weeks, but neither one was enjoying it. The affair just wasn't exciting enough for Candy, and she admitted that she felt bad for Pat, who still didn't suspect a thing. Likewise, Alan felt guilty about leaving Betty alone with the baby, just not guilty enough to actually end things. By September of 1979, this strange love triangle was looking bleak. Candy was bored. Alan was racked with guilt. Betty felt completely alone. Something had to change. But what? Alan's breaking point came a few months after Bethany's birth. Betty wanted to have sex with him again. One night, after the children were asleep, she made a flirty advance. Alan was caught off guard. He'd been with Candy earlier that day and was physically spent. He said he didn't feel like it, and Betty started sobbing. She thought her husband didn't find her attractive after her second pregnancy, and nothing he said seemed to help. She couldn't stand a rejection from the one person she thought was in her corner. Alan knew that he'd hurt her, and he knew that the affair had to end. According to journalists John Atkinson and Jim Bloom, Alan called Candy a few days later telling her, I'm afraid of hurting Betty. If I want to get my life back in order, I need to stop running between two women. Candy was equally ready for this chapter of her life to be over. She cordially wished Alan luck on fixing up his marriage. To say goodbye, Alan wrote a long letter detailing how much he appreciated her and the time they shared. When 29-year-old Candy received the letter in October 1979, she skimmed through it, smiling at the memories from their year together. Then she stuffed it into a dresser drawer. Candy was intent on moving on, and as the new year grew closer, she thought about all the ways she wanted to reinvent her life without relying on Alan. She was almost 30 and wanted to completely rediscover herself as a new decade dawned. This quarter-life crisis didn't make Candy unique. In fact, she resembled many people reaching the end of their 20s. Social psychologist Daniel J. Levinson theorized that every adult alternates between periods of stability and periods of intense transition. These bursts of unrest tend to cluster around milestone birthdays, like when someone turns 20, 30, or 40. Moving into a new decade in life can force people to face the fact that they're getting older and to reflect on their lives up to that point. As Candy approached 30, things may have felt even more muddled for her because the expectations of women were changing so rapidly at the time. Levinson interviewed women around Candy's age in the early 1980s for his book, The Seasons of a Woman's Life. He found that women's transitional periods were more emotionally charged than men's because they felt pressure to establish both a family and a fulfilling career by a certain age and often ended up picking one over the other. During their periods of change, they often wondered if they'd chosen incorrectly or berated themselves for not achieving both. Candy's first solution to her quarter-life crisis was to have an affair, but her unsatisfying relationship with Alan had shown her, once and for all, that male attention was not the road to fulfillment she once thought it was. 
So seemingly desperate for meaning, she doubled down on her volunteering efforts, signed up for writing classes, and got involved in more church events. She signed up for a women's-only Bible retreat in April of 1980. Pat was left with the kids alone in the house for the first time in years. He missed Candy and felt a pang of nostalgia for their first summer together. He went looking for the box where Candy kept their old letters and was confused when it wasn't in its usual place. Pat looked through the entire bedroom. When he opened one of Candy's dresser drawers, he saw an envelope and picked it up, excited to revisit their early dates. His heart sank as he unfolded the paper. It was addressed to Candy, but wasn't his handwriting. This was a love letter, but not from him. It was Alan's goodbye letter. Pat was stunned to see mentions of sexual experiences and the Como Motel. He'd never suspected Candy of cheating on him, much less with someone from church. Pat had been with Candy long enough to know that directly confronting her would only make things worse. He'd always been best at expressing his feelings to her on paper, so he sat down and wrote a letter. He thought the affair was his fault, the result of neglecting Candy and forcing her to seek affection elsewhere. He ended the letter with an affirmation of his love for her. Before Candy returned home, Pat went to a floral shop to buy a dozen roses, placing them and the letter under the bed. He waited until the kids were asleep to pull out the flowers and the letter, then silently left the room to give Candy time to read. Candy read Pat's letter multiple times and started sobbing. When she was finally able to talk, she told him she never wanted to hurt him and was ashamed. Pat stiffly accepted her apology. Candy assured him that the affair was over and added fixing up marriage to her long list of goals. In the following weeks, the couple planned a vacation for just the two of them. They were determined to get things back on track. It took work to get there, but things were feeling stable again on June 13, 1980. That morning, Candy dropped off five-year-old Ian and the inseparable pair of girls, seven-year-old Jenny and six-year-old Alyssa Gore, at Bible camp. It was Friday, the last day of vacation Bible school. Candy's friends had joked about this final day falling on Friday the 13th. After five days of coordinating carpools, sermons, and games for 50 kids in the oppressive heat of early summer, the day sure felt unlucky. As the kids spilled out of the station wagon, Candy waved goodbye and promised them that she'd be back to see their puppet show at 11 o'clock. She had multiple errands to run in the spread-out suburbs. The car needed gas, and she needed Father's Day cards. The kids had begged her to see the new Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, which meant she needed to check if Alyssa could stay over and pick up a change of clothes at Betty's. She should be able to make it back in time for the kids' show, but it would be tight. She pulled out of the parking lot and started driving south. First stop, Betty's house. It would be a quick visit, and then the rest of the day would go smoothly. Candy was sure of it. A few miles south, in the sprawling suburbs of Wiley, Texas, 
Alan Gore was trying to pack his bag for a business trip. Betty hovered behind him, holding the baby. He could tell she was upset. She didn't like to be left alone, especially with one-year-old Bethany. Adding to her stress, her period was late, and she was worried about being pregnant again. She half-heartedly folded a shirt for him, then broke out into tears. Alan pulled her into a hug, trying to soothe her. He reminded her that he'd be back in a few days, and that their vacation to Europe was only a week away. Betty was so excited for the trip, she had described it as a second honeymoon the night before. Just the thought of it calmed her down. Then Alan pulled away to grab his bag and load it into their Toyota pickup. Betty followed him out, holding the baby at her hip. Her tears were drying, and she smiled weakly as he leaned in and reminded her that no matter what happened, they could deal with it. He promised to call from the airport and climbed behind the wheel, stealing a glance back at the driveway as he headed out. Betty was holding the baby's tiny arm in the air, making it wave bye-bye to Alan. She was smiling, the first genuine smile he'd seen that day. But it was also the last time he'd see her alive. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Candy Montgomery's story. We'll follow Candy as she confronts Betty, then goes to great lengths to cover up her crime. For more information on Candy Montgomery, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. Don't forget to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.